Chapter Eleven of The Last Plainsman by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. MikeVendetti.com. The Last Plainsman by Zane Gray. Chapter Eleven. On to the Seawash. Who all was doing the talking last night? asked Frank next morning, when we were having a late breakfast. Cause I've a joke on somebody. Jim, he talks in his sleep often, and last night, after you did finally get settled down, Jim, he up in his sleep and says, Sure, he's windy as hell. Sure, he's windy as hell. At this cruel exposure of his subjective wanderings, Jim showed extreme humiliation, but Frank's eyes fairly snapped with the fun he got out of telling it. The genial foreman loved a joke. The week's day at Oak, in which we all became thoroughly acquainted, had presented Jim as always the same quiet character, easy, slow, silent, lovable. In his brother cowboy, however, we had discovered in addition to his fine, frank, friendly spirit, an overwhelming fondness for playing tricks. This boy's mischievousness, distinctly Arizonan, reached its acme whenever it tended in the direction of our serious leader. Lawson had been dispatched on some mysterious errand, about which my curiosity was all in vain. The order of the day was leisurely to get in readiness and pack for our journey to the Siwash on the morrow. I watered my horse, played with the hounds, knocked about the cliffs, returned to the cabin, and lay down on my bed. Jim's hands were white with flour. He was kneading dough and had several low, flat pans on the table. Wallace and Jones strolled in, and later Frank, and they all took various positions before the fire. I saw Frank, with the quickness of a sleight-of-hand performer, slip one of the pans of dough on the chair Jones had placed by the table. Jim did not see the action. Jones and Wallace's backs were turned to Frank, and he did not know I was in the cabin. The conversation continued on the subject of Jones' big bay horse, which, hobbles and all, had gotten ten miles from camp the night before. Better count his ribs than his tracks, said Frank, and went on talking as easily and naturally as if he had not been expecting a very entertaining situation. But no one could ever foretell Colonel Jones's actions. He showed every intention of seating himself in the chair, then walked over to his pack to begin searching for something or other. Wallace, however, promptly took the seat, and what began to be funnier than strange, he did not get up. Not unlikely this circumstance was owing to the fact that several of the rude chairs had soft layers of old blankets tacked on them. Whatever were Frank's internal emotions, he presented a remarkably placid and commonplace exterior. But when Jim began to search for the missing pan of dough, the joker slowly sagged in his chair. "'Sure, that beats hell,' said Jim. "'And three pans of dough. Could the pup have taken one?' Wallace rose to his feet, and the bread-pan clattered to the floor, with a clang and a clank, evidently protesting against the indignity it had suffered. But the dough stayed with Wallace, a great white conspicuous spot on his corduroys. Jim, Frank, and Jones all saw it at once. "'Why, Mr. Wallace, you said in the dough!' exclaimed Frank in a queer, strangled voice. Then he exploded, while Jim fell over the table. It seemed that these two Arizona rangers, matured men though they were, would die of convulsions. I laughed with them, and so did Wallace, while he brought his bone-handled bowie-knife into novel use. 
Buffalo Jones never cracked a smile, though he did remark about the waste of good flour. Frank's face was a study for a psychologist when Jim actually apologized to Wallace for being so careless with his pans. I did not betray Frank, but I resolved to keep a still closer watch on him. It was partially because of this uneasy sense of his trickiness in the fringe of my mind that I made a discovery. My sleeping-bag rested on a raised platform in one corner. At a favorable moment, I examined the bag. It had not been tampered with, but I noticed a string running out through a chink between the logs. I found it came from a thick layer of straw under my bed, and had been tied to the end of a flatly coiled lasso. Leaving the thing as it was, I went outside and carelessly chased the hounds round the cabin. The string stretched along the logs to another chink, where it returned into the cabin at a point near where Frank slept. No great power of deduction was necessary to acquaint me with full details of the plot to spoil my slumbers, so I patiently awaited developments. Lawson rode in near sundown, with the carcasses of two beasts of some species hanging over his saddle. It turned out that Jones had planned a surprise for Wallace and me, and it could hardly have been a more enjoyable one, considering the time and place. We knew he had a flock of Persian sheep on the south side of Buckskin, but had no idea it was within striking distance of Oak. Lawson had that day hunted up the shepherd and his sheep to return to us with two sixty-pound Persian lambs. We feasted at supper-time on meat which was sweet, juicy, and very tender, and of as rare a flavor as that of the Rocky Mountain sheep. My state after supper was one of huge enjoyment, and with intense interest I waited Frank's first spar for an opening. It came presently, in a lull of the conversation. "'Saw a big rattler run under the cabin today,' he said, as if speaking of one of old Baldy's shoes. I tried to get a whack at him, but he oozed away too quick. Sure, I've seen him often, put in Jim. Good old honest Jim, led away by his trickster comrade. It was very plain, so I was to be frightened by snakes. These old canyon beds are ideal dens for rattlesnakes, chimed in my scientific California friend. I have found several dens, but did not molest him as this is a particularly dangerous time of the year to meddle with reptiles. Quite likely there's a den under the cabin. While he made his remarkable statement, he had the grace to hide his face in a huge puff of smoke. He, too, was in the plot. I waited for Jones to come out with some ridiculous theory or fact concerning the particular species of snake, but as he did not speak, I concluded they had wisely left him out of the secret. After mentally debating a moment, I decided, as it was a very harmless joke, to help Frank to the fulfillment of his enjoyment. "'Rattlesnakes!' I exclaimed. "'Heavens! I'd die if I heard one, let alone seeing it. A big rattler jumped at me one day, and I've never recovered from the shock.' Plainly, Frank was delighted to hear of my antipathy and my unfortunate experience, and he proceeded to expatriate on the viciousness of rattlesnakes, particularly those of Arizona. If I had believed the succeeding stories, emanating from the fertile brains of those three fellows, I should have made certain that Arizona canyons were Brazilian jungles. Frank's parting shot, 
sent in a mellow, kind voice, was the best point in the whole trick. Now I'd be nervous if I had a sleeping bag like yours, because it's just the place for a rattler to ooze into. In the confusion and dim light of bedtime, I contrived to throw the end of my lasso over the horn of a saddle hanging on the wall, with the intention of augmenting the noise I soon expected to create, and I placed my automatic rifle in a thirty-eight S and W special within easy reach of my hand. Then I crawled into my bag and composed myself to listen. Frank soon began to snore so bracingly, so fictitiously, that I wondered at the man's absorbed intensity in his joke, and I was at great pains to smother in my breast a violent burst of riotous merriment. Jones's snores, however, were real enough, and this made me enjoy the situation all the more, because if he did not show a mild surprise when the catastrophe fell, I would greatly miss my guess. I knew the three wily conspirators were wide awake. Suddenly I felt a movement in the straw under me, and a faint rustling. It was so soft, so sinuous, that if I had not known it was the lasso, I would assuredly have been frightened. I gave a little jump, such as one will make quickly in bed. Then the coil ran out from under the straw. How subtly suggestive of a snake! I made a slight outcry, a big jump, paused a moment for effectiveness, in which time Frank forgot to snore, and then let out a tremendous yell, grabbed my guns, and sent twelve thundering shots through the roof, and pulled my lasso. Crash! The saddle came down, to be followed by sounds not on Frank's program, and certainly not calculated upon by me, but they were all the more effective. I gathered that Lawson, who was not in the secret, and who was a nightmare sort of sleeper, anyway, had knocked over Jim's table with its array of pots and pans, and then, unfortunately for Jones, had kicked that innocent person in the stomach. As I lay there in my bag, the very happiest fellow in the wide world, the sound of my mirth was as the buzz of the wings of a fly to the mighty storm. Roar on roar filled the cabin. When the three hypocrites recovered sufficiently from the startling climax to calm, Lawson, who swore the cabin had been attacked by Indians, when Jones stopped roaring long enough to hear it, was only a harmless snake that had caused the trouble. We hushed to repose once more. Not, however, without hearing some trenchant remarks from the boiling colonel, anent fun and fools, and the indisputable fact that there was not a rattlesnake on Buckskin Mountain. Long after this explosion had died away, I heard or rather felt a mysterious shudder or tremor of the cabin, and I knew that Frank and Jim were shaking with silent laughter. On my own score, I determined to find if Jones, in his strange make-up, had any sense of humor or interest in life or feeling of love that did not center and hinge on four-footed beasts. In view of the rude awakening from what, no doubt, were pleasant dreams of wonderful white and green animals, combining intelligence of man and strength of brutes, a new species creditable to his genius, I was perhaps unjust in my conviction as to his lack of humor, and as to the other question, whether or not he had any real human feeling for the creatures built in his own image, that was decided very soon and unexpectedly. The following morning, as soon as Lawson got in with the horses, we packed and started. Rather sorry was I to bid good-bye to Oak Spring. Taking the back trail of the Stuarts, we walked the horses all day up a slowly narrowing ascending canyon. 
The hounds crossed coyotes and deer trails continually, but made no break. Sounder looked up as if to say he associated painful reminiscences with certain kinds of tracks. At the head of the canyon we reached timber at about the time dusk gathered, and we located for the night. Being once again nearly nine thousand feet high, we found the air bitterly cold, making a blazing fire most acceptable. In the haste to get supper we all took a hand, and someone threw upon our tarpaulin tablecloth a tin cup of butter mixed with carbolic acid, the concoction Jones used to bathe the sore feet of the dogs. Of course I got hold of this, spread a generous portion on my hot biscuit, placed some red-hot beans on that, and began to eat like a hungry hunter. At first I thought I was only burned. Then I recognized the taste and burn of the acid and knew something was wrong. Picking up the tin, I examined it, smelled the pungent odor, and felt a queer, numb sense of fear. This lasted only for a moment, as I well knew the use and power of the acid, and had not swallowed enough to hurt me. I was about to make known my mistake in a matter-of-fact way. When it flashed over me, the accident could be made to serve a turn. "'Jones!' I cried hoarsely. "'What's in this butter?' "'Lord, you haven't eaten any of that.' Why, well, I put carbolic acid in it. Oh, oh, I'm poisoned. I ate nearly all of it. I'm burning. I'm dying. With that, I continued to moan and rock to and fro and hold my stomach. Consternation preceded shock. But in the excitement of the moment, Wallace, who, though badly scared, retained his wits, made for me with a can of condensed milk. He threw me back with no gentle hand and was squeezing the life out of me to make me open my mouth. When I gave him a jab in his side, I imagined his surprise as this peculiar reception of the first aid to the injured made him hold off to take a look at me, and in this interval I contrived to whisper to him, Joke, joke, you idiot! Only shaming. I want to see if I can scare Jones. Get even with Frank. Help me out. Cry, get tragic. From that moment, I shall always believe that the stage lost a great tragedian in Wallace. With a magnificent gesture, he threw the can of condensed milk at Jones, who was so stunned he did not try to dodge. "'Thoughtless man-murderer! It's too late!' cried Wallace, laying me back across his knees. "'It's too late! His teeth are locked! He's far gone! Poor boy! Poor boy! Who's to tell his mother?' I could see from under my hat-brim that the solemn, hollow voice had penetrated the cold exterior of the plainsman. He could not speak. He clasped and unclasped his big hands in helpless fashion. Frank was white as a sheet. This was simply delightful to me. But the expression of miserable, impotent distress on old Jim's sun-brown face was more than I could stand, and I could no longer keep up the deception. Just as Wallace cried out to Jones to pray, I wished then I had not weakened so soon. I got up and walked to the fire. Jim, I'll have another biscuit, please. His under jaw dropped. Then he nervously shoveled biscuits at me. Jones grabbed my hand and cried out with a voice that was new to me. You can eat? You're better? You'll get over it. Sure, why carbolic acid never faces me. I've often used it for rattlesnake bites. I did not tell you, but that rattler at the cabin last night actually bit me, and I used carbolic to cure the poison. Frank mumbled something about horses and faded into the gloom. As for Jones, 
He looked at me rather incredulously, and the absolute, almost childish gladness he manifested because I had been snatched from the grave made me regret my deceit and satisfied me forever on one score. On awakening in the morning I found frost half an inch thick covered my sleeping bag, whitened the ground, and made the beautiful silver spruce trees silver in hue as well as in name. We were getting ready for an early start when two riders with pack-horses, jogging after them, came down the trail from the direction of Oak Spring. They proved to be Jeff Clark, the wild horse wrangler, mentioned by the Stuarts and his helper. They were on the way into the brakes for a string of pintos. Clark was a short, heavily bearded man of jovial aspect. He said he had met the Stuarts going into Fredonia, and, being advised of our destination, had hurried to come up with us. As we did not know, except in a general way, where we were making for, the meeting was a fortunate event. Our camping site had been close to the divide, made by one of the long wooded ridges, sent off by Buckskin Mountain, and soon we were descending again. We rode half a mile down a timbered slope, and then into a beautiful flat forest of gigantic pines. Clark informed us it was a level bench some ten miles long running out over the slopes of buckskin to face the grand canyon on the south and the breaks of the siwash on the west for two hours we rode between the stately lines of trees and the hoofs of the horses gave forth no sound a long silverly grass sprinkled with smiling bluebells covered the ground except close under the pines where soft red mats invited lounging and rest we saw numerous deer great gray mule-deer, almost as large as elk. Jones said they had been crossed with elk once, which accounted for their size. I did not see a stump or a burned tree or a windfall during the ride. Clark led us to the rim of the canyon. Without any preparation for the giant trees hid the open sky, we rode right out to the edge of the tremendous chasm. At first I did not seem to think. My faculties were benumbed. Only the pure sensorial instinct of the savage who sees, but does not feel, made me take note of the abyss. Not one of our party had ever seen the canyon from this side, and not one of us said a word. But Clark kept talking. "'Wild place this is here,' he said. "'Seldom anyone but horse-wranglers gets over this far. I've had a bunch of wild pintos down in a canyon below for two years.' I reckon you can't find no better place for camp than right here. Listen. Do you hear that rumble? That's Thunder Falls. You can only see it from one place, and that far off. But there's brooks you can get to water the horses. For that matter, you can ride up the slopes and get snow. If you can get snow close, it'd be better, for that's an all-fired bad trail down for water. Is this the cougar country the Stuarts talked about? asked Jones. Reckon it is. Cougars is as thick in here as rabbits in a spring-hole canyon. I'm on the way now to bring up my pintos. Cougars have cost me hundreds, I might say thousands of dollars. I lose horses all the time, and damn me, gentlemen, I've never raised a colt. This is the greatest cougar country in the West. Look at those yellow crags. There's where cougars stay. No one ever hunted them. Seems to me they can't be hunted. Deer and wild hosses by the thousand browse here, in the mountain in summer and down in the breaks in winter. Cougars live fat. You'll find deer and wild hoss carcasses all over this country. 
you'll find lion's dens full of bones. You'll find warm deer left for the coyotes. But whether you'll find the cougars, I can't say. I fetched dogs in here and tried to catch old Tom. I've put them on his trail and never saw hide nor hair of them again. Jones, it's no easy hunting here. Well, I can see that, replied our leader. I never hunted lions in such a country and never knew anyone who had. We'll have to learn how. We've the time and the dogs. All we need is the stuff in us. I hope you fellows get some cougars, and I believe you will. Whatever you do, kill old Tom. We'll catch him alive. We're not on a hunt to kill cougars, said Jones. What? exclaimed Clark, looking from Jones to us. His rugged face wore a half-smile. Jones ropes cougars and ties them up, replied Frank. I'm... He'll never rope old Tom, burst out Clark, ejecting a huge quid of tobacco. Why, man alive, it'd be the death of you to get near that old villain. I never seen him, but I've seen his tracks for five years. They're larger than any hoss tracks you ever seen. He'll weigh over three hundred, that old cougar. Here, take a look at my man's hoss. Look at his back. See them marks? Well, old Tom made them, and he made them right in camp last fall, when we were down in the canyon. The mustang to which Clark called our attention was a sleek cream and white pinto. Upon his side and back were long, regular scars, some an inch wide and bare of hair. How on earth did he get rid of the cougar? asked Jones. I don't know. Perhaps he got scared of the dogs. It took that pinto a year to get well. Old Tom is a real lion. He'll kill a full-grown hoss when he wants, but a yearling colt is his special liking. You're sure to run across his trail, and you'll never miss it. Well, if I find any cougar sign down in the canyon, I'll build two fires so to let you know. Though no hunter, I'm tolerably acquainted with the varmints. The deer and hosses are ranging the forest slopes now, and I think the cougars come up over the rim rock at night and go back in the mountain anyway. If your dogs can follow the trails, you've got sport, and more sport coming to you. But take it from me. Don't try to rope old Tom. After all our disappointments in the beginning of the expedition, our hardship on the desert, our trials with the dogs and horses, it was real pleasure to make permanent camp with wood, water, and feet at hand. A soul-stirring, ever-changing picture before us and the certainty that we were in the wild lairs of the lions, among the lords of the crags. While we were unpacking, every now and then, I would straighten up and gaze out beyond. I knew the outlook was magnificent and sublime beyond words, but as yet I had not begun to understand it. The great pine trees, growing to the very edge of the rim, received their full quota of appreciation from me as did the smooth, flower-decked aisles leading back into the forest. The location we selected for camp was a large glade, fifty paces or more from the precipice, far enough, the cowboys averred to, to keep our traps from being sucked down by some of the whirlpool winds, native to the spot. In the center of this glade stood a huge, gnarled, and blasted old pine, but certainly by virtue of hoary locks and bent shoulders had earned the right to stand aloof from his younger companions. Under this tree, 
we placed all our belongings, and then, as Frank so fallaciously expressed it, we were free to ooze around and see things. I believe I had a sort of subconscious, selfish idea that someone would steal the canyon away from me if I did not hurry to make it mine forever. So I sneaked off, and sat under a pine growing on the very rim. At first glance, I saw below me, seemingly miles away, a wide chaos of red and bluff mesas, rising out of dark purple clefts. Beyond these reared a long, irregular tableland, running south almost to the extent of my vision, which I remembered Clark had called Powell's Plateau. I remembered also that he had said it was twenty miles distant, was almost that many miles long, was connected to the mainland of Buckskin Mountain by a very narrow wooded dip of land called the Saddle and that it practically shut us out of a view of the Grand Canyon proper. If that was true, what then could be the name of the canyon at my feet? Suddenly, as my gaze wandered from point to point, it was arrested by a dark conical mountain, white-tipped, which rose in the notch of the saddle. What could it mean? Were there such things as canyon mirages? Then the dim purple of its color told of its great distance from me, and then its familiar shape told I had come into my own again. I had found my old friend once more, for in all that plateau there was only one snow-capped mountain, the San Francisco Peak, and there, a hundred and fifty, perhaps two hundred miles away, far beyond the Grand Canyon, it smiled brightly at me, as it had for days and days across the desert. Hearing Jones yelling for somebody or everybody, I jumped up to find a procession heading for a point further down the rim wall, where our leader stood waving his arms. The excitement proved to have been caused by cougar signs at the head of the trail where Clark had started down. They're here, boys. They're here, Jones kept repeating, as he showed us different tracks. The sign is not that old. Boys, tomorrow we'll get up a lion, sure as you're born. And if we do and Sounder sees him, then we've got a lion dog. I'm afraid of Don. He has a fine nose. He can run and fight, but he's been trained to deer, and maybe I can't break him. Mose is still uncertain. If old Jude only hadn't been lamed, she would be the best of the lot. But Sounder is our hope. I'm almost ready to swear by him. All this was too much for me, so I slipped off again to be alone, and this time headed for the forest, warm patches of sunlight like gold, brightened the ground, dark patches of sky like ocean blue gleamed between the treetops. Hardly a rustle of wind in the fine-toothed green branches disturbed the quiet. When I got fully out of sight of the camp, I started to run as if I were a wild Indian. My running had no aim, just sheer mad joy of the grand old forest. The smell of pine, the wild silence and beauty loosed a spirit in me, so it had to run. And I ran with it till the physical being failed while resting on a fragrant bed of pine needles endeavoring to regain control over a truant mind trying to subdue the encroaching of the natural man on civilized man i saw gray objects moving under the trees i lost them then saw them and presently so plainly that with delight on delight i counted seventeen deer pass through an open arch of dark green rising to my feet i ran to get round a low mound they saw me and bounded away with prodigiously long leaps. Bringing their forefeet together, stiff-legged, under them they bounced high like rubber balls, yet they were graceful. 
The forest was so open that I could watch them for a long way, and as I circled my gaze a glimpse of something white arrested my attention. A light grayish animal appeared to be tearing at an old stump. Upon nearer view I recognized a wolf, and he scented or sighted me at the same moment and loped off into the shadows of the trees. Approaching the spot where I had marked him, I found he had been feeding from the carcass of a horse. The remains had only been partially eaten, and were of an animal of the mustang build that had evidently been recently killed. Frightful lacerations under the throat showed where a lion had taken fatal hold. Deep furrows in the ground proved how the mustang had sunk his hoofs, reared and shaken himself. I traced roughly defined tracks fifty paces to the lee of the little bank, from which I concluded the lion had sprung. I gave free rein to my imagination and saw the forest dark, silent, peopled by none but its savage denizens. The lion crept like a shadow, crouched noiselessly down, then licked on his sleeping or browsing prey. The lonely night stillness split to a frantic snort and scream of terror, and the stricken mustang, with his mortal enemy upon his back, dashed off with fierce, wild love of life. As he went he felt his foe crawl towards his neck on claws of fire. He saw the tawny body and the gleaming eyes. Then the cruel teeth snapped with sudden bite, and the woodland tragedy ended. On the spot I conceived an antipathy towards lions. It was born of the frightful spectacle of what had once been a glossy, prancing mustang, of the mute, sickening proof of the survival of the fittest, of the law that levels life. Upon telling my camp followers about my discovery, Jones and Wallace walked out to see it, while Jim told me the wolf I had seen was a loafer, one of the giant buffalo wolves of buckskin, and if I would watch the carcass in mornings and evenings, I would sure as hell get a plunk at him. White pine burned in a beautiful clear blue flame with no smoke, and in the center of the campfire left a golden heart, but Jones would not have any sitting up, and hustled us off to bed, saying we would be blame glad of it in fifteen hours. I crawled into my sleeping bag, made a hood of my Navajo blanket, and peeping from under it, watched the fire and flickering shadows. The blaze burned down rapidly, then the stars blinked. Arizona stars would be moons in any other state. How serene, peaceful, august, infinite, and wonderfully bright. No breeze stirred the pines. The clear tinkle of the cowbells on the hobbled horses rang from near and distant parts of the forest. The prosaic bell of the meadow and the pasture brook, here in this environment, jingled out different notes, as clear, sweet musical as silver bells. End of chapter 11